If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey guys, it's Tammy Merhap Chavez. And Bryce Mitchell Williams. We are the hosts of Hollyweird Paranormal. It's a podcast about Hollywood true crime and the paranormal based out of Los Angeles, California. We spike this Hollywood cocktail with stories of true crime and its paranormal aftermath, along with dirty Hollywood scandals and secrets that make up this weird city of Hollywood and its surrounding areas that make up this crazy state of California. Catch our episodes every Sunday on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Life is too short to be normal. Stay weird with Hollyweird Paranormal. All right, but you mentioned a cocktail, and now it's all I'm craving. Right? Let's end this promo and get one. Yes. something fun this year and we're this is our emmy special so um we're going to talk about a couple of very specific shows but there's right we should say emmy special yeah but we want to talk about the nominees that specifically relate to what la not so confidential is about yeah absolutely i mean there's there's so many great shows that are nominated that are kind of right up our alley um but first, I thought I'd ask you, Scott, what do you think of the Emmys? Do you love them? Do you get into them? Um, I get, totally get into them. I am my former boss, Allison Jones, who's this amazing casting director from back in my casting days. Um, I am her good luck charm. Every time she invites me as her plus one to the Emmy, she wins an Emmy. And every time she doesn't invite me, she <gasps> doesn't win. So, Did you get an invite this year? Uh, I did not. So, <laughs> Allison, you're screwed. Not my fault. Oops. Yeah, but it's kind of an amazing ceremony. But we went to, you know, there are so many awards that are given out that they have to spread it over uh, two days or right. two evenings. And it's it's actually really cool. I mean, it's a great group of people, especially if you're going to the creative Emmys, which are more people like makeup and, you know, the things you see the highlights of, but not right. the actual people that walk up on stage. And, you know, people are in a really good mood and everybody's really happy. But there's a lot of Emmys handed out, like... I can't believe the categories. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the lot of statues, a category for commercials. Yeah. Oh yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, there, and there's also, there's local Emmys There's stuff for like, you know, newscasts and people, people from all over the country get, get nominated. And, um, there was like the funniest thing. I mean, this is completely dating me, but you know, one of the big controversies about the Emmys or for one particular actress, Susan Lucci from, Mm -hmm. Oh, days of our lives? No, she wasn't Days of Our Which Lives. She was in General Hospital. She no. was All My Children. All my Children. Okay, so the big joke was for years that 
she had never won an Emmy right. and she hosted Nominated yeah, every year. Every year. Like and so dozens of years. Over and over again. So when she went back in the Mike Myers days of Saturday Night Live, she mm-hmm. was a guest host and they did a whole skit about everyone on the show having been nominated for an Emmy. Like she walks into the makeup person's room and like there's six <laughs> Emmys and like they go into the cat, the S the NBC cafeteria and people are using Emmy statues as corn cob holders. Oh my and- God. That's hilarious. Oh, <laughs> she eventually won, right? Yeah. She won one, but oh um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool thing. And it, you know, it's representing artists um, mm-hmm. for really amazing work. Although as a, as a geek, as a sci-fi geek, I will say this is that, you know, in all the years that all the iterations of Star Trek were right. on, all the freaking amazing makeup, they'd get nominated every time and they never won anything because they'd always give it to historical makeup or historical costumes. And, it, yeah. you know, this is just me pulling out my little Geekazoid soapbox. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of reflective of like, oh, that's not real entertainment. That's only a specific, you know, it's, sure. it's, the, it's the Academy. It's a bunch of... Up until a few years ago, it was a bunch of really old people voting on these things. And it's like, okay, right. if, you're, if you don't get science fiction, then you shouldn't be voting right. on a category. Doesn't that, mean they shouldn't win. Exactly. Because look at the creativity, especially on that week show, Face Off. Have you ever seen it on Sci-Fi Channel? Yeah. 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 They do, like, amazing, amazing work. So, anyway, that's, that's my cool. rant. All right. Back Get off the your intro. soapbox. <laughs> um, so, I'm, I just want to run through some of the really great shows that are nominated this year so we can just kind of chat about that for a second. Um, I don't, this isn't necessarily true crime, but I know you and I are kind of into this, but specifically the actor Jesse Plemons, um, who is in episode one of Black Mirror this year, the USS McAllister. Oh, yeah. So, that was just. There's so many interesting concepts in that episode alone. Um, well, it consists, it constantly surprises you because yes. you at first, and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but for eh. those of you who aren't watching black, well, yeah, eh. for those of you who aren't watching black mirror, even if you're not a science fiction person or a right. twilight zone person, you should be seeing it because it's a cutting edge show. It's out of the BBC. It's been on for four seasons and it's the whole concept is five minutes in the future. And if you're a gadget or a tech person at all, or if, if you haven't freaking use a computer, it, it, it well, no, it makes you think because like every terrifying. single one of those episodes is absolutely possible. We are, right. we are a couple of years away from that technology. Right. And this is one that's a character that they've, you know, you take my gaming background, mm-hmm. which we talked about and they turn, uh, an active, like a multi multiplayer online role playing game, right? But you're completely immersed immersed in it. Like you're got a neurological stem, and you're you you feel that you're there. You experience right. it you're there, and you know it. Ta- it's about so many elements of video game addiction and personality development, and you feel so sorry for this sad, lonely nerd that's bossed around, and then. He's this. Total, you realize that he's just a terrible person, horrible, horrible person. Well, and it doesn't. You know, we watch so much true crime stuff, and it doesn't have to be a serial killer to be terrifying. It's this sort of potentially not too far in the future. These things could be happening, and people could be finding ways to essentially capture people, kidnap yeah. people, absolutely um, run their lives through technology. Yeah. So I think that's what sort of piques my interest in it. Well, there's also an aspect to I me, mean, this is a, this is a little bit far fetched, but he uses, he uses a per he, they've got a technology where they can use a person's DNA 
to recreate that person in a virtual world. So at the point where the DNA sample was taken, there's now a divergent reality of the person who lives in real space and the person who lives in the virtual world. And at that point, they they diverge in memories and experience. But the idea, I mean, there's also a theory of rape. These, you know, he mm-hmm. he basically mm-hmm. rapes these men and women, takes right. their lives, creates them, uses them as slaves. Very sadistic. Yep. Um, so it's it's yeah. covering a lot of themes. It and is. he he's I think he should I hope he wins. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so Sarah Paulson was nominated for American Horror Story Cult, which we did an episode on in season one. She can do yeah. anything. She can do absolutely no wrong. Um, Edie Falco, of course, is nominated for the Law and Order True Crime series of the Menendez murders. Oh, right. Leslie Abramson, right? That's who she yes. played the attorney. Yes. Um, Jessica Beals nominated for The Sinner, which we are hoping to still get to and cover in a future episode um, discussing some of those issues. And we're going to probably throw a couple other things in there, a documentary we have our eye on. Um, so, I mean, her performance was Yeah, it's great. outstanding. Um, Sandra O oh is nominated for Killing Eve, which oh, I have not seen. You haven't seen it yet? No. Oh my gosh. I, you know, it was one of those that I, I heard about it and I really like her. She's really amazingly talented. And I just, in the description of it, it seemed hokey. It's like that is a little bit of a ripoff of Hannibal. I mean, or, you know, sort of yeah. staring too long into the abyss and you become influenced and man, it's really worth seeing. It? It's okay. it's got some it's amazing radar, acting. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then for another strong female lead, we have um, Cameron Britton from Mindhunter is nominated. Oh yeah. So um, those are basically the the actors of note. And then of course, Wild Wild Country is nominated for outstanding documentary. Um. Speaking. Okay, I have to put yeah, a caveat. Please in that. do. Okay, so if you haven't seen Wild Wild Country, um it's really, I know we tell you to see a lot of things, but wild, wild country is covers so many areas of, I mean, it covers the whole cult thing, uh, so well that we will probably revisit in the future, but also, um, I urge everyone, if you want a good laugh, Bill Hader and Fred Armisen, Fred Armisen have a series on, um, the Turner? independent film channel. Yeah, that's uh, they do fake documentaries. Um, they do like the send up of all the documentaries that are on Netflix right now. And they do. It's called documentary. Now it's called documentary now. And it's hilarious. They do a, a send up of thin blue line. They do a send up of great gardens. And now they're going to be doing one of wild, wild country. And we'll, we'll talk about this more in a future episode, but please everyone see wild, wild country, because I want you to see the whole thing before you see the satire of it. It's going to yes. be great. That's fantastic. Um, what else? Okay, so of course I had to include the new season of Twin Peaks is nominated for oh, yeah. uh, directing and cinematography. But why is Kyle McLaughlin not nominated? <laughs> he played three different people this season. <laughs> Come on. And he was fantastic, of course, always. He was nominated back in 92 originally. What a career. Uh, I know. I know. Um, talking Six Degrees of Separation. Yeah. Portlandia, Fred Armisen. Um, and then I didn't know there was an HBO uh, TV movie, Fahrenheit 451, which is kind of throwback to our last episode on arson. Yeah. Did you see it? I 
I didn't. No, um, it, I haven't heard you know, anything about it. I, you know, I love the original movie that was based on the Ray Bradbury book because it's incredibly surreal. And it to me, it spoke to a time where really sort of conceptual movies were being made like, you know, like um, 2001, right. which was not necessarily conceptual, but like uh, THX with Robert De Niro and Spielberg's first films. Mm-hmm. Like it's really... Mm-hmm sort of spare science fiction. Right. And so there, the movie version of Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 <laughs> was, uh, was really cool. I mean, like this one just was like really high concept was and it? a bunch of, I mean, the promos, the actors were kind of chewing scenery, which didn't appeal to me, but yeah. I'll probably watch it sometime. Um, okay, so the two that we are going to talk about today, we picked a true crime story as well as a fictional story. Um, so we're going to look at the assassination of Gianni Versace, which Oof. is um, um, is the second installment of the American crime story series. The first one was The People versus O.J. Simpson. So this is done by the same people, and it's the second series, I guess, yeah. season, if you will. Um so it is nominated for directing, outstanding limited series, outstanding cast, which I know this is your area, but as a lay person, this casting is just bananas. Yeah. It is so yeah. good. And just about everybody's nominated, which they should totally be. validates yeah. that. Um, so Darren Chris, he plays Andrew Cunanan. Um, I know and love him from Glee. <laughs> yeah. He goes from adorable private boy school singer to probably one of the most psychopathic characters I've ever watched on TV. Um, Finn Wittrock is plays Jeffrey trail. So he, I love him from American horror story freak show. Yeah. He's just so just intoxicating to watch. I don't know. I love that guy. Um, Edgar Ramirez of course plays Versace. Um, he's in like everything now, the new point break he was on in, um, Girl on Train, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Um, Ricky Martin is nominated um, as Antonio uh, D'Amico, and then Penelope Cruz as Donatella Versace, um, and then Judith Light as Mar- Marilyn Miglin. Um, she's nominated as well, so she did a fantastic job. Yeah, it was really heartbreaking. It I was. thought that whole that whole scene with you know Miglin. And his, and I mean, you really, there was a poignancy and sadness to his character and how he mm-hmm. becomes involved with Kunan and, right. and then just the brutality of, of what happened. Oh, and then, and then, and then Marilyn having to discover the whole thing. It was, it, it was, was really well done without having to retreat to gory scenes. Sure. It was really good. Sure. You know, and I have no problem with gory scenes, but that was, that was pretty well done. Right. So we are also going to cover The Alienist. Yes. Um, so it was, or it is nominated for Outstanding Limited Series. Um, not nearly the uh, the nominations of Versace, but still we wanted to pick something a little bit different, but that we also really liked. So, um, all right. So should we start with the assassination of Gianni Versace? Yeah. Um, so... I want to talk about obviously the the show, but I want to do some background on Kunanen as well as um, really look at the timeline of events. Because yeah. so the interesting thing about the series is that 
the series starts with the murder of Versace for like the first two episodes. Um, and then it goes, it starts to go backwards. Right. So it's a little bit confusing. And then it, it kind of comes back around to um, Kunanan's, you know, the, the police are kind of closing in and um, his eventual suicide. So, which is kind of a really great way of telling that story I loved because. It. As I remember, like suddenly it was, you know, just in the news everywhere that this murder had happened, but nobody had connected the dots. I mean, there were, or if, if people were, if, if investigators were connecting the dots, it certainly wasn't in the news because why would it be? I mean, right. None no, of these, it took none some of, time. Yeah. I mean, it was like nobody really figured out that. So suddenly it was just this big event. And right. so the way they're telling the story working backward, you know, alludes to that. Yes. No, I, I thought it worked really well after kind of the initial confusion. Cause this, so this was 1997. Um, I mean, I was a year out of high school. I don't know how much I was really paying attention to oh it. Oh my God, I'm so other, old. Other, other, I, I, I even like hesitate. I don't want to date myself until you want to graduate high school. Um, but you know, I had clearly like other stuff going on in my life. And I, I remember kind of the manhunt part. Yeah being a piece of the news. Um, and then I don't know if I necessarily was really wrapped up into, into it until later and kind of looking at it as a true crime story. Um, but essentially on the morning of July 15th, 1997 fashion designer, Gianni Versace is shot and killed outside his Miami beach mansion by a known wanted spree killer who is Andrew Kanan. so let's kind of take a look at who Andrew was. Um, so he was born in 1969 in National City, which is down in the San Diego area here in California. Um, his father was a Filipino American and his mom was an Italian American and he was the youngest of four kids. And it's depicted very well in the TV show how he was just everything to his dad like he he was the golden child oh. and they were going to put all of their effort and time into him oh great that's a great dynamic that's to a set great up in start family. that's yeah. a great start um let's just deny all of our other kids love and attention yeah. and focus yeah. on the the one that has the most tendency to become a sociopath right let's let's start those building blocks early um so they end up enrolling him in this really exclusive um private school in an affluent neighborhood of of la jolla down in San Diego, and um, he was really bright. I mean, he, at one point, I think during probably teenage years, high school years, his IQ was about 142. Um, <sighs> yeah. So, you know, he, he everyone said that he was just a really bright, talkative, kind of center of attention guy. He was, um, let's see, high school would have been around... 87 for him or so. Um, but he was out as gay in high school and just, um, likable in a sense, but started to gain this reputation of being a compulsive liar even then. Um, so he, there, there was also some talk in some biographies and books that, you know, he even started dating older wealthy men at that time. And that obviously becomes a, um, a big part of his sort of parasitic lifestyle that we'll talk about later. Um, but I can imagine that, you know, he had to learn to sort of be more mature and mm -hmm. carry on conversations with people. If he's engaging in relationships with people older than him and kind of 
feeling like um, there was something beyond, you know, sort of that life for him and wanting something better. Well, you had been talking earlier about how they really do fill out the background information on his father. I mean, that that his father was a complete con man with, you know, some success and then a lot of failure. Um, And I mean, we, when we talk about antisocial personality disorder, uh, you can certainly turn a child into a sociopath if you create a toxic enough environment. And then there's also the, the condition of the actual wiring of the person. So there, you know, it sounds like that he may have had more of a tendency towards these behaviors. And then he's raising, he's being raised in an environment where he's the golden boy, golden child does nothing wrong. And he's witnessing his father with a completely, you know, skewed, Yes. Baseline for behaviors and how he interacts with the world. Right. Right. So he's looking at, okay, how, how can I get my needs met? And then to have, I think, did the dad have one, like a a deal that just finally went bad and he disappeared, something like that. He he He, abandoned the family, right? He abandoned the family because the feds were closing in and we're going to arrest him for embezzlement. Okay. Yeah. So So here's a kid that has engaged in pathological lying. Right. um, Creating this veneer of perfection, this veneer of success. Completely. And then the actual foundation for that veneer, the, the, the foundation for the fakeness of it, completely dissolves and he's going to be even further motivated to recreate it and reinstate it by any means necessary. Oh, absolutely. It's shattered. He has to pick up those pieces and make it fit and make it work. You, and your choice of the word parasitic lifestyle is, I'm going to, I'm going to start using that more often. Oh I yeah. Think. It's I think that applies one. to a lot of people. It's a good one. <laughs> um, interestingly in high school, he was voted least likely to be forgotten. Okay. Well, that's a that's a great. You know, I was thinking about this the other likely day. To, isn't it? Yeah, it's usually most likely to. That's a little. It's a little sketchy for a school. To well, do that, I was but. recently thinking of how awful some of those categories are. Yeah. You know, just I don't know. Anyway. No. Well, we've all got well, me, we've all got high school talks. Let me bust out my high school yeah. yearbook. And no, I'm just kidding. Um. So, yeah, so in 88, when Kunan was about 19, that's when his dad just deserted the family. He picked up, moved back to the Philippines, was in the wind, out of the country. Um, so Kunanan and his mom lived together for a while. She's depicted as just batshit crazy in the show. Wow. <laughs> um, but probably, you know, battered wife at some point, now left with four kids. Well, I guess they were all adults at that point, but... Um, it looks like there's some tendency towards violence sort of building up there because at, at one point he does throw her against the wall and dislocates her shoulder. Okay. So, um, and that wasn't creative liberty. That was, that's, that's a real, a real thing. Um, but then, so after he graduates from high school, he enrolls at university of California, San Diego and majors in American history, but he's only there two years before he drops out and then decides to move to San Francisco. So he was really, you know, kind of became a fixture in the nightlife of the Castro district. Um, again, kind of befriending wealthy older men. Um, reportedly, he took an interest in creating violent themed pornography. Like um, written? I am not sure. That's, That's a great question. Okay. I don't know. Um, 
And then he kind of floated back down to La Jolla every once in a while as, you know, there's some reports of him, you know, also being in some ritzy places of like Scottsdale, Arizona, and just kind of latching on to people and living with them for periods of time. And then there is also a good amount of reports of him supporting himself in between by selling drugs. So if he's not selling drugs, he's probably has, you know, some sort of sugar daddy or boyfriend that's right. supporting him financially. And do we have, do we, did they discuss like sort of, or refer to any actually just straight, you know, prostitution or is it more, I mean, was he more calculating than that? And so there's, there's speculation and rumor that he escorted um, so a version of sex work, um, and that maybe that's how he met Miglin. Uh-huh. Um, but it, you know, a lot of the, the families that he, the families of the victims that he victimized really want to deny like a previous connection. Oh, wow. Even with okay. Versace. So like he was rumored to have met Versace in San Francisco at one point, um, which there, there's a book on Andrew Cunanan where that that is documented, but Versace's family is like, no, that never happened. Hmm. So okay, that's interesting. Which I I think that could have been a because we don't know what his motive was for killing Versace. The fact that he committed suicide, people are kind of left hanging with like, okay, what was motive here? Um, well, what do you think? Just offhand. Well, I think that maybe if they did meet that he kind of saw Versace as like the ultimate prize or goal of, you know, can I manipulate this person to be with me or, you know, some sort of fantasy. And, that, and Versace was uh, denying him that. Yeah. Maybe he just completely dismissed him and blew him off. It could be. And if he never met him, it could also be, I mean, maybe his pathology was to the extent that I can't be that, but I can destroy it and be remembered for it. Yes. You know, in the way that, you know, there are, you know, there are serial killers throughout the last 30 years that have been like, oh, I want to beat Dahmer's record. I want to meet right. Dahmer's record. Yeah. Just of murdering somebody yeah. famous. I mean, yeah, we see that a lot of times, especially with a lot of copycat things. And um, even in like some of the school shooting type things, well, I wanted this to be a Columbine. We often get that in written documents or oh, confessions. Wow. Um. So, yeah, he really had no specific job throughout adulthood, um, but he found a way to either fraudulently or by living off other people have really nice things and travel to nice places. And he was very well read, so he could talk about anything. And he right. he would, you know, talk about this these elaborate he, – he had a bunch of AKAs and – I think De Silva was one of the um, last names he used, and he would talk about his father being Italian and being in Italy, and he would be able to hold a conversation with someone and snow them for a really long time about having traveled to these places and yeah, I mean, in it, certain fields. and also you know the ability to you know the the benefit of being well read and making an effort to develop that ability to connect with people on that level makes him even more adept at inserting himself into older men's lives that may have been. I mean, it seems like a, several of his targets were 
when we say older, we're not talking 40s. We're talking oh, yeah. like late 50s, 60s, sure. 70s. He's going, I mean, sure. he's this young mixed race guy that, you know, is quite attractive. Right. I find it also interesting that he sort of, you know, moved very quickly away from his Filipino heritage. He always describes himself always. as, you know, he's Hispanic or Italian. Hispanic mix or mainly Italian, right. which is, you know, that, that speaks a lot to, you know, classist issues of how, you know, Filipinos are a marginalized community in Asia. They're a marginalized right. community in some parts of the U.S. And it's also sort of, I don't want to be seen as that. I want to be seen as, yeah. you know, trying to carry himself off as something else. Although Da Silva is like a, that wasn't the greatest choice, right? No, it not, doesn't sound very Italian. It doesn't Italian sound Italian at all. <laughs> it could be a Filipino. But he could carry it off. If you look at his pictures, it's sure. like you can't really, he's, you know, got, he's a, handsome-ish guy little yeah, not yeah. as good look as darren chris no. I mean, usually i mean the hollywood version is always like the better looking version of the, the right. real person but he was in shape and charming apparently yeah. yeah yeah um and so in 1996 so this is a year prior to um you know sort of the spree killing and of course the the murder of versace he was with a man that was you know a millionaire um, I believe in the San Diego area and he had finally put his foot down and really broken up with Andrew. So you have kind of this loss of this relationship and now he's sort of transient again. Um, so, and he's not going to go work at Dairy Queen, uh, right? No. It's because that's not going to support his way, lifestyle. Exactly. Way below him. Um, so, uh, I want to kind of like weave in the victims here as far as like timeline. Um, so 1995, um, he meets David Madsen. So to keep this in the timeline, David mm-hmm. Madsen will end up being his second victim. Okay. So um, they, David's an architect and he is from Minneapolis, but they meet in a San Francisco bar when he's, David's out here visiting. Um, and they basically started up a relationship, but David moves back to Minneapolis and it's pretty, you know, long distance and not super stable. Um, but Madsen eventually um, decides to break up with him long distance. And what he told friends was that he really felt like Kunanan had a dark or shady side to him that he was just picking up on. Okay. So probably like catching him in lies and he was figuring it out. He's figuring. Yeah, even, and he yeah. wasn't lying to himself. Right, right. So in 1996, um, Kunanen's what will be his first victim, a guy named Jeff Trail, um, he leaves San Diego. He was in the Navy originally and then got into some, you know, construction or labor. Um, he leaves San Diego and moves to Minneapolis and Kunanen is completely paranoid and convinced that now his friend from San Diego has moved to Minneapolis to be with David, his ex, and has this idea that they are out there now carrying on. But wait, did they know each other? They met supposedly at like a party in San Diego. Okay, that's really interesting because I had forgotten that part of the story as I was reviewing it. And that that's that's going to tie into you know the assumptions we're making about diagnostic criteria right. if we're looking at him as a personality disorder that that kind of Versus assumption that's a maybe a psychotic disorder or some paranoia something yeah there. because why you know he's because for a smart person to make that sort of that sort of leap 
Right. Anyway, just to put a note in that. And, and pin in that. there is no evidence um, truly in reality that they did have a relationship. In the TV show, they do kind of okay. show that, yeah, they're starting to see each other behind Andrew's back, even though Andrew's not living there. He's living out here. Um, so that, that plays into, I think, a little bit more of the salaciousness. But there's, there's nothing to indicate they were secretly involved. Um, so Kunanin having then been broken up with by his millionaire boyfriend in San Diego decides to move back to San Francisco, but says that he's going to go visit his friends in Minneapolis first before he goes to San Francisco only buys a one-way ticket to Minneapolis. So this fuels speculation that was this planned was these murders planned. He went, you know, wanted to go out there to Mm -hmm. do that or start his spree, if you will. Um, but essentially, he goes out to Minneapolis in April of 1997, um, goes and stays with David. So David, you know, successful architect, has his own place, goes to stay with him. And then um, Jeff comes over to visit because Andrew's in town. And a little bit before 10 o'clock that night, um, Andrew kills Jeff. The second he walks in the door by bludgeoning him to death with a hammer. So this is the ex-Navy guy, you know, been his friend in San Diego yeah. and just bludgeons him to death in David's apartment. Wow. So um, so there's speculation of whether or not, you know, David was home while this happened or if he came home after it happened. Um, but then essentially Andrew holds David against his will and takes him on the run with him. So the police show up to this apartment. There's a dead body in there. They think David killed some guy and split at his apartment. And it takes a while to put pieces together of who even the dead person is and all of that. So, but at this point, Kunanin's on the run. He's holding his friend David hostage. um, And they take off and they're essentially driving around Minneapolis, Minnesota for a few days. Um, and then at some point, um, and they're in David's Jeep, by the way, at some point um, it's thought that David tries to escape. And so Andrew shoots him and kills him. Wow. So, um, and then from there, so now he has two victims. We have two different methods of murder. Essentially, you know, one really close up and very gruesome with this hammer. And then you have the firearm um, with this friend. So after that, he continues in David's Jeep. He drives to Chicago. Um, They know that because they find it parked on the street with a parking ticket on it, like around April 30th, a citation. Um, But he goes there and May 4th, he kills Lee Miglin, who was this Chicago real estate mogul. You know, um, what he was in his 70s, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is, in the TV show, this would be Judith Light's husband. Um, I was in an acting class in Chicago with their daughter. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They talk about in yeah. the she show was that absolutely, the son is an actor. And the, the daughter, I mean, I, I can't remember what she ended up doing. She was a really lovely person. This was mm. all before that happened. So oh my it was, I remember my friend Dana calling and going, oh, my God. Miglin got 
they found Miglin's mm-hmm. body, and oh. you know this was before any of the news had broken, and we could they figured it out. Do you have a connection to everything we talk about? <laughs> I s- sound like a complete pathological liar, don't I? I'm like, no, you know what they used to call me, <laughs> Miguel, my, my, <laughs> the social know. worker Miguel, when I was working at the jail, used to call me Penelope. Because that character from Saturday Night Live that Kristen Wiig plays, where she's always oh, got to right. one up everybody. Yes. I swear, folks, I, I promise you, I'm, I just had a very weird life. And uh, this doesn't sound one uppy <laughs> at all. It's just like it's a weird connection. I it know. is. It is. I think it's probably just the entertainment industry, right? Is just so small right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's just funny. I just had to note that. Um, okay, so he kills Lee Miglin while. Um, Lee's wife is out of town. So the body's not discovered for a while, but she comes home and eventually finds it. Um, he, and it, in the show, I don't know exactly how it was done in reality, but it's very gruesome in the show. I mean, it well, kind of leads him into like almost this sadistic sex play and then beats all, him pretty brutally. Yeah, and it's it also, I mean, this was a very wealthy family and very mm-hmm. devoutly Catholic, if I believe, because I they so. had they had a chapel in their home. Oh, yes. And that, yes. that plays very much into it. I mean, there's really, mm-hmm. I, one of the things that I think is, is portrayed so well in this particular um, production is just like the pathos of like a, a closeted male who has lived this Mm-hmm. You know, false life, and and who knows? Marilyn may have known about some aspect of it. it. It's implied that she kind of knows something's going on yeah. because there's sort of this hesitation. Is like, don't you want to come on this trip with me? I'm going to be out of town, and he's like, no, I'm going to stay here. And you know, he's got. I mean, and we don't know. I mean, this is sort of tertiary sure. narrative telling. So we're three steps out from, if not more, from what actually happened. So right. we'll never know, but. You know, it it was sad. You know, to, to the idea that this guy is trying to grasp something, you know, some sort of meaning right. or expression of his sexuality, and gets caught up with this guy. Yeah, gets caught up with a complete, yeah. complete sociopath. Right, right. No, it is. I mean, she in the show, she's depicted as, you know, being this very strong businesswoman that's trying to hold it together. For not only his business, but her own like beauty line, yeah. perfume line, and business, and um, knowing that she has to still like have a life after this, and doesn't want any of that to come out, yeah, and that you know just completely denied it, so um, denied that there was some sort of previous relationship or that her husband was involved in any of that. But yes, it is speculated that they might've met like through an escort service. So he was familiar with him. There's no forced entry. There's no like crime of opportunity sort of burglary or anything like that indicated. So, um, so Kunanen steals Miglin's car heads for New York. Um, at this point, I don't think the pieces are put together really yet. You know, this, why would the heck would they connect this murder in Chicago to these two guys in Minneapolis? Um, the car phone was activated somewhere in New Jersey. So he's just like driving around, um, basically before he goes back or goes down to Florida. Well, you know, even, and even with the the dramatization of it, okay, he's on the run and it, it seems to be following a pattern of, you know, that sort of on the run mentality of criminals that 
however well they were organized and contained, they can, they were seemed, you know, he has to come. This is a person who was able to, for an, a distinct period of time, was able to contain his impulses because you have to be mm-hmm. able to contain your impulses in order to con people. Right. Sure. So suddenly we see this unraveling. Absolutely. You know, and to the point where he is now disinhibited and willing to engage in these violent behaviors and, and now not really even thinking things through like, and maybe now I w- I'm making an assumption because maybe 20 years ago, did we really would, if I would, if I had stolen a car with a car phone and would I really think that somebody would be able to track me in it? Probably not. Yeah. Who but, knows? E- but even so there's and it was this... a 1997 car phone. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's the... not like it is today. Yeah. So, I mean that, that part I'm maybe speculating a little bit on, but you do see this sort of, Un- unraveling and wondering. I mean, this takes me back to working, you know, reading the research and having um, taken a couple of trainings with Kevin Cameron out of um, Canada, the threat threat assessment, mm-hmm. Canadian Threat Assessment Bureau. And he, one of the things he says is that no one ever snaps. Right. You know, there is no snapping because the pathway to vi- the pathway to violence violence is an evolutionary process. Yep. There's always steps. There's always gradations. And then there's something that's a triggering event that pushes people over into this this level sure. of action, and we'll never know. No, you know, it's unless some nuts. unless somebody comes forward at some point with more information, we're never going to know. Sure. So he's on the run. Um, there is this depiction of just a lot of paranoia, and you know, kind of. I think he like sees helicopters or planes, and kind of like throws the phone out the window and thinks he's being tracked. So. Um, he does eventually um, switch license plates and comes upon this cemetery worker who has a red truck and kills this guy for his car. Wow. So, you know, talk about desperation and really the unraveling. So um, he drives through South Carolina. So he's definitely on his way south. And then finally into Florida, gets another set of uh, license plates, puts it on the, the stolen truck he's in. Um, and at this point, I think it's June 12th, they finally put the pieces together and he gets put on the FBI's most wanted list. So he's on a radar nationally, but it's who knows where this guy is at. Which means people are talking. Right. Right. And that's right. something that's not really fleshed out so much in the series is like, they had to be getting that information from the bars like, okay, oh, yeah, there was a new face in town that was working yeah. the older male male patrons, you know, that kind I of thing. I think eventually when they found um, David's Jeep in Chicago, uh-huh. probably near Miglin's house, okay. it's like, oh, okay, we got these two dead guys, we've got a dead guy here. Okay, that's, this is yeah, probably now we're putting it. a pattern together. Yeah, yeah. Um. But he lives in Miami for a month, even before the Versace murder. Wow. So he's in Miami. He's hiding out. He's um, getting the lay of the land, too, right? I mean, if there's any kind of planning going on, he's scoping. He kind of, for whatever reason, that feels like a place he can hunker down for a while, maybe kind of disappear into the the scene down there. Right. Um, it, it's shown in the show that he's in this like shitty little motel and doing drugs as well as selling drugs and um, just really in bad condition. Um, so he's he's just like barely 
making any money. You yeah. know, this is this is far from the Andrew Cunanan that, you know, was living it up and Yeah, living the high life and right. traveling around and and you know, you know, vampirically sucking money yeah. off of people. Which was obviously everything to him. I mean, yeah. that if, if you're putting all your time and energy and effort into living that lifestyle and maintaining it, this is the polar opposite. So hopelessness, just I'm at the, you know, he's not that old, 27 years old. And he could have gotten a fresh start at this point, right? <laughs> you only, you only killed over? four people. Oh my God. No, well, go to the Philippines with your dad. Oh, well, the, <laughs> the, also the idea, you know, going, we're going to look at it clinically that the idea that from a, an identity development perspective that he had really built this, continue to maintain this veneer of success, you know, reaching towards something that was never actually real in his family. So rather than doing something real to create an actual sense of mastery in the world. He is building on his father's experience and conning people. And so now like you can't help but think from a clinical perspective that this degraded state he finds himself in selling drugs, cheap motel, you know um, he doesn't have access to the clothes, to the level of money that he used to, he's going to get desperate. Yes. You know, because even a sociopath has a sense of self, right? Sure. They're sure. they're a monster, but they have a sense yep. of self. So now he can't even keep up the veneer of his previous right. success. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so on June 12th is when he's added to the most wanted list. And he is there for a while in Miami. But, I'm sorry, he wasn't, he was there for a month before the Versace murder, but he was put on the list on June 12th, July 15th. So yeah, about a a month later, um, he approaches Versace who was returning to his mansion just after his morning walk, um, shoots him twice in the head and Versace's pronounced dead at the hospital a short while later. I mean, I'm sure that he was deceased there on scene, but, um, so it takes about eight days. He's again. He's on the run. The truck is parked somewhere. They figure out that it's been there a long time. That it's got stolen plates on it. Um, and he ends up breaking into a houseboat um, and hiding out there. A, a houseboat that was unoccupied at the time. Um, and in the in the show, it's very dramatic. You know, the SWAT team setting up, and there's helicopters, and they're calling him out, and. It's very much that like closing in feeling. Um, But even though the cops were actively looking for him and closing in on him, I think it was more psychological because it's not as if they were just outside the door when he ended up killing himself. So someone, I think a a maintenance worker or someone actually ended up calling into the cops that he heard a gunshot. Right. That's what I remember. And then then there was a bunch of media coverage with the helicopter surrounding it and they weren't sure he was dead. Right. 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 Um, yeah, there's tons of, you know, crime scene photos and just the, it was a huge media yeah. spectacle. Um, so you can go online and look at just, you know, them bringing the body out and, um, you know, all of that. But yeah, again, you know, with him killing himself and, you know, he's the boy who cried wolf. No one really knows what to believe of what he ever said. So figuring out motive, especially for the Versace murder, is really tough. You know, I think 
we can speculate with his friend that he took hostage if he was really in love with that guy and he's sort of the one that got away and then there's this jealousy with this other guy okay you can see that like crime of passion well possibly my, <laughs> well my no but it's not so far off but let's let's put it in the the framework of someone with antisocial personality disorder or in that whole cluster you know that cluster b spectrum mm-hmm. which has all been lumped together because now it's new dsm but like if we're talking right. about that old stuff um the idea of that he's not really seeing he doesn't see Reality. his boyfriend as you know as an object of love he sees as an as a narcissistic extension of himself right. and it's like you you're you're not an actual person you're an appendage and if this appendage is not going to give me what i want or do what i want it to do then i'm going to lop it off right i mean there's it's very right cut and dried i mean it's a different sort of emotional process and that you know the with again kind of that lifestyle he wanted and if he did find himself very attached to this person you know he's he's a young guy like himself successful architect he's everything he's not he's right absolutely everything he's not um yet he's a goal he's a possession he's an achievement of sorts um and then he breaks up with him piggybacking on the other breakup that he had which was really just a you know um, somebody that was supplementing his income, but, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, we can kind of speculate a little bit more about those, um, murders and motivations, but for Saatchi's really, you know, kind of the questionable one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, you know, if you want to hear more about psychopathy if you go back to our season one to our episode i think it's 1.5 yes it's a mini episode that we did covering psychopathy um he just looking over the items on the checklist on the assessment for which we assess psychopathy i mean he hits just about everything everything. without me having like a chart and a file in front of me i mean i i don't know necessarily about you know some juvenile delinquency and things like that but the hallmarks are just, just, just the parasitic lifestyle, which sometimes you see it's not as obvious as this, um, but clearly that was a, a a hallmark as well as um, the pathological lying. But I mean, the superficial charm, the grandiose sense of self worth, um, and shallow. It- oh gosh. The shallow affect. Oh, yeah. You talked about that great scene that you loved. Describe describe that scene. And this is like episode one or two, but this is right after he kills Versace. And he's still in Miami kind of hiding out. And it's just kind of broke on the news, right? So he, he dips into, I think it's another little hotel on the strip there. And everyone there is staring at the news and watching it. And he's kind of standing behind this woman. And the angle is so great because the the camera shot is like you're standing in front of the woman so you can see him behind her and she's just horrified looking at the screen and she lifts her hand up to her mouth to cover it because she's just like so shock. horrified just shock eyes wide and he is standing behind her watching her the whole time and then he slowly lifts his hand up to his mouth like just completely mimicking her right like oh this is what everyone's doing and what I should be doing and it was the way Darren Chris played this wasn't like, 
oh, I need to blend in, so I'm going to do what other people are doing. It's like, oh, I need to try and mimic this emotion. And it was so which is, good. Which is subtle, but that's a distinct difference there. <sighs> right? He's so not trying well. to blend in. He's like, oh, this is the way I should be reacting in order not to stand out. Yes. Or this is, it's al- it was almost like a... To me, it had a lizard-like quality. Oh, like a Like reptilian. Yes. You know? Um, yes. And I think he played it. I mean, he's, Darren Chris is a very talented young actor, but I think also, yeah, got to give credit to Ryan Murphy oh, for completely. the direction because they, they, really, they really brought together, like, we don't know if he was hitting hallmarks on that checklist of, like, was he, was he harming animals? You know, did he have, like, sort of a, a disregard how did he treat his siblings like there's no i wasn't able to find any research on that i'm still looking because i would love to know i think the family is like we don't like they're going underground they don't want to have anything to do with it that would be fascinating and you know you might find out that they shrug their shoulders and go we saw none of this we knew he was a liar and he wanted to be rich but and we you know estranged ourselves from him yeah which would be completely understandable yeah yeah the other one is that stick out to me are just like that lack of long-term realistic goals. And that kind of goes with the pathological lying with him. But, you know, all these things that he wants to do are said that he's done. And, it, you know, even though he's so intelligent, it, you you look at these people and you're like, God, if you had only channeled this in other ways, you'd well, be so goddamn successful. And some right. many psychopaths are. But right, because remember in okay, in one point five, and that's something I wanted to go back to is that, you know, on that spectrum of the antisocial flavors, the antisocial uh-huh. traits, uh-huh. is there are plenty of Fortune five hundred CEOs right. that meet many of the criteria on that checklist and are quite successful because they can see long-term goals and they're like and calculate okay well this is what needs to be done in order to achieve that without regard to how those steps may affect family members or co-workers or you know the five thousand grannies whose retirement plans they're going to be investing right but with him he's not able to it's he's bouncing like he's it's like the little like the guy on in the game doodle jump he's just jumping run one opportunity to the next. I mean, even if you were like, here I am imagining, like if I was in his place, it's like, you know, work these angles, get a, yeah, get a payout. Lock this of, guy down. You know, get 25,000 off this guy, 25,000 off this. It's like lay your found groundwork yeah. and then invest it wisely. And yeah. You're set. Live your life, you know, <laughs> here we are practicing, hey. to be, practicing to be sociopaths. Read, um, snakes in suits by Robert Hare. And oh, that's his that's version that talks less about the, well, I mean, still criminal, but, um, you know, the way it's, psychopathy is channeled into like CEOs and politicians and things like that. And the other book I like too, just to mention that we've talked about before is um, Martha Stout who did the sociopath next door. And she talks about the, the more manipulative behaviors that ASPD individuals have because that, because of their lack of the ability to, um, experience emotion on the full spectrum, what they do get great pleasure out of is manipulation in a cat and mouse yep. type scenario. And yeah. she, she gives some really great feedback on that. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed this series. I thought it was 
beautiful um, and just done really well. And all the actors were just fantastic. So I hope they all win. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> all right. Shall we talk about the alienists? Yeah. So I've got a little backstory on this that I think is really great. And um, so the alienist, which most of you are probably somewhat familiar with is a, a, a series, a one season series based on a Caleb Carr novel from, I believe, 1994. And Caleb Carr is a, a really, I wouldn't say famous author, but he's well-known and he's extremely talented. He's actually turned this particular novel and the character into a series. He's done a couple of more books about that person. But one of the things that's really great, and I, I feel, I, well, let me be upfront about it. Like, I think that there are certain aspects of the the TV miniseries version of this novel that are really, really excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, I fell in love with the book over 20 years ago and it was so good. It was so good. And the reason it was so good is because nobody had done anything like this. So the alienist, for those of you who don't know, is set in, uh, in the teens in America. You know, it's, it's a, at a particular point in history, which is really fascinating. It's like, well, it's not even the teens. It's 1896 and okay. it takes place in New York society. Um, and they're actually even fold in some real historical people like, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and JP Morgan. Uh-huh. And, what it does is it follows this story um, taken at a time when Theodore Roosevelt was the new police commissioner of New York City. Okay. So what is going on at that time, which is fascinating, is there was incredible corruption going on in the police force. Yep. And that corruption was a reflection of the social class struggle in America at the time. So we had a lot of immigrants, you know, this country is made of phenomenal spectrum of immigrants from all around the world. And at that time, it was, there was this pattern, the new wave of immigrants was always on the bottom rung. And what had happened was the Irish had worked themselves up to what would eventually become considered like a middle class. And they were primarily the police force. So, but there was a lot of corruption Mm -hmm. and so that's woven into the story and I'm already getting ahead of myself because (laughs) basically like, let's get back to the title. The alienist is the alienist was probably the first term that was used for what would eventually become a psychologist because the idea is that people with mental illness and emotional problems, um, uh, they were thought to be at that time alienated from themselves. Mm -hmm. They were alienated from their true human nature for some reason. And there were a lot of theories that were unfounded. This is happening right as Freud is coming out with his seminal works on psychology and uh, ego drives and sexuality, which was completely changing the scope of how we looked at ourselves in the Western world. So this book, going back to my first point of why I'm like, I felt like I got to read this at a very special time is this is before CSI. This is before, um, law and order, you know, criminal procedure. I mean, it was starting, but it wasn't, sure. I mean, God knows profiling, law, law and order has been on for well, how long? 30 years, but profiling and, yeah. and we have kind of the, that hype around all that, right. The deep interest. In and it. the way 
So the story is that there is a serial killer in New York that is targeting a specific victim, which Mm -hmm. is really heartbreaking. And uh, there's sort of an ad hoc group of people that comes together. And one of them is uh, Theodore Chrysler. No, not Theodore Chrysler, uh, but Chrysler. What is Mm -hmm. his first name? Doctor. Well, it's Dr. Chrysler. (laughs) So he is... Laszlo. uh, Oh, Laszlo. Okay. So Laszlo Chrysler is a German alienist. So he's worked in, you know, then what were insane asylums and he's worked in private practice and has about all the knowledge on human behavior that you could possibly have at that time, which was pretty limited, actually. And what he does is he hooks up with a man who is sort of comes from money and is bored, um, but is also a fantastic artist. And he does a lot of uh, drawings for newspapers and magazines. And he becomes a forensic artist. Right. So one of the first times, this is long before that idea was used in identifying, uh, you know, using uh, witnesses to like, well, let's describe the person and get a a picture of her. This was that the nascent of that. Well, And, and from, you know, sort of this time period, on into like the 20s, 30s, 40s, journalists are a big part of crime and crime scenes, and they're always there. They're getting the drop on a crime scene before the cops are. Right. Not so, like today at all. Right. I mean, so like not like today at all. They kind of incorporate him to be at a crime scene isn't weird necessarily, right. even if they weren't letting the alienist there. So, but he was, that was the way the alienist could get in as he would tell him, go and make sure you look at this. Tell me, tell me everything about the scene. So then they also have, um, uh, one of the first, uh, female employees of the New York city police department. And she was in a secretarial position played by, uh, Dakota Dakota Fanning. Fanning. Is it Dakota? It's not L. No, it's not L. It's good old Dakota. Well, she's great. Yes, she is. Um, she is just like a really strong, you know, proto-feminist mm-hmm. um, and certainly so smart that she's an intellectual equal of anybody in the show, which is great. But once again, this is a particular period of time where women were absolutely right. seen as second-class citizens. I mean, we're not even... The, the suffrage movement is barely even being talked about at this time. Oh, yeah. So. Um, and shoulders for days. Oh, my gosh. She wears, what are those <laughs> called? Lam, uh, uh, mutton of, le- leg of mutton sleeves. Yeah. Oh I mean, they've got her cranked into I a corset. It's had to imagine. be so uncomfortable. But anyway, so it's basically this sort of uh, forensic team that comes together. They have two really fascinating characters, two uh, Jewish brothers who have, been put on the police force in order to diversify the police force because there's so much corruption within the existing Irish population. Um, And these two guys are on the cutting edge and they're, and in the way it's described in the book is so cool because they're talking about this brand new technology, which is fingerprints. Oh my gosh. And just the idea that like, we just take that for granted now. Yeah. So are they medical doctors kind of, it, they're kind of introduced as like medical examiners. Yeah, they're Is medical that... examiners because they they have they certainly have knowledge on anatomy and they they start dissecting the victims and right. the 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 really and... twist on this the violent gory twist on this is that all the victims are young boys who are uh, adolescent and pre adolescent low income working as prostitutes in um, a boy brothel. And at that time, 
and they're you know it's 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 pretty disturbing to look at because yeah, these is. young boys are dressed as young women right so they go and they you know they're they're getting the population of pedophiles you know, when there were no laws at that time, I mean, they had brothel laws, but nobody followed them because there was graft and corruption within sure. the police department. So, um, I highly if they recommend dress up as girls. It's okay. It, well, they were lower than low. So it's like, yeah. these were in some ways the Irish looked at it. I mean, not the Irish, I'm sorry. The cops looked at it as like, well, they're victimless crimes. These are, this is the trash of society. Right. Why do we care that somebody was, gutted eyes gouged out and their genitals removed sure. you know and and i think a right hand was removed as well yeah so they start putting the clues together and and i, I don't want to give away too many spoilers i highly recommend reading the book because i think it's great yeah i think i'm gonna read it but then to talk about the series um visually it's incredibly stunning it's so good i mean it is you see the juxtaposition between the class structures and the people who were absolutely incredibly wealthy and the just the dirt poor people that we forget that people were so poor. These kids living, you know, with two pieces of clothing, sleeping in a gutter in the rain. And that, you know, in the slums, that was the reality of these tossed away children. That was so sad. And you see the dirt and the grit and who has money. I'm so drawn to, shows in this time period because it's like if i could smell this show it would smell horrific well did we did i talk about that before because that's a really great anthropological study i read an article years ago yeah it fascinated me because they were an anthropologist was giving a lecture and he was talking about if you if you plucked someone from medieval times in europe Uh and you brought them forward in time 700 years they would freak out by the overstimulation of sound and light. Sure. Because they lived in a time where if you were, I mean, even if you were royalty, it's like, you know, still the only, you know, there was limited light at night, you know, (laughs) there was the sound. If music was not available to everyone, it was, you know, the chatter of life died down at the end of every day. And, this would be so much stimulation for him. And then he did the reverse and he said, you know, if you took someone from today's time uh-huh. and took them back 700 years, that we would be assaulted by the smell. Assaulted you know, is just, a great just absolutely way to put it. assaulted and overwhelmed by the hot, poor hygiene oh. because we had poor, we had wonderful hygiene in certain communities like the, the Asian communities, you know, throughout history, the, in the Roman communities. But then once, you know, we had sort of the christening of Western Europe. They rebelled against everything that those vulgar, horrible Romans stood for, including hygiene practices. So bathing became... Not the thing is to stand against. Oh, I no. mean, if you're going to pick one. Yeah, seriously. But anyway. I just love... I, I don't know. I, I just kind yeah. of drawn to that, like, Penny Dreadful and Taboo. Oh, God, I Penny Dreadful, those. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then I don't want to dress in those clothes. So, well, I'll go back if Even I can if you're ha- rich. If I could have a stick, <laughs> a, of de- a stick of deodorant, a, some toothpaste, <laughs> and what else? Chapstick. 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 Oh, and I'd have to have mentholatum to put under my nostrils like they do in CSI <laughs> so I wouldn't have to smell everybody else. Those would be our... Um, those are my survival things. Yeah, what do they t- call them in s- the show Survivor? Your luxury items. Your luxury items. You right. can bring one thing. Right. Mentholatum. Chapstick. 
but uh so the series looks wonderful um i think the actors for the most part are phenomenal um Mm -hmm. dakota fanning is great and has all these layers um there's an uh, a native american maid servant to chrysler no no you're it's a woman Oh, 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 okay. You're thinking, I'm about thinking about the other. The African American yes, guy is fantastic. Yes. The young uh, orphan boy is great. And Luke Evans, I mean, oh, Gaston. Dude, I mean, that guy. <laughs> I, I mean, know. come on. I mean, I look at him at like, okay, like that's boyfriend material of like way beyond my reach. So, with, like, I'm not even <laughs> fantasizing about that. I'm just thinking, like, oh, I kind of want to be you because he's cool. Yeah. Like, he's cool without being. I mean, there's something about him, and he's British, but he has the most perfect turn-of-the-century accent. There's something about the quality of his voice. And even, like, you know, he's paying this sex worker to, like, be romantic with him, and you're Uh, like, oh, poor guy, instead of being grossed out by him. Yeah, well, it's also, that's a story of him. Like, he he has a backstory of losing a wife. I think he lost her to tuberculosis, so he he relives this scene over and over, like the engagement, and then... Yeah, and then for the, I'm doing air quotes, the girlfriend experience with the prostitute. Yes, yes. But, um, so yeah. one of the problems I have with the series, it's great. I mean, it looks great. Um, the actors are great. The problem is, is that the book is pretty tight. Mm-hmm. And trying to stretch it over a multi-episode, I mean, mm-hmm. it would have been impossible to get it all in a movie unless it becomes an action movie. Okay. So you couldn't have gotten the nuance, but stretching it out over the number of episodes they do, it seems like they're just, you know, kind of making filler. Yeah. Um, there is a season two in production. There is? Yes. Oh, well, it's probably based on, I think it's Angel, is it Angel of Death or Angel of Darkness is the sequel to this book. So they're oh, probably really? doing Angel oh, of okay. Darkness. Yeah. But I think also the weak, this is the thing to me that's the weak link in all of it, is Daniel Bruhl. And Daniel Bruhl is a German actor who... Was in Inglorious Bastards. He's, he's German and everything. Yeah. He's the German guy. And he's, I just don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say whether or not he's a good actor because I like, I can't judge his talent because he just annoys me. Do you feel like he plays the same person in everything? No, I mean, I think in Inglorious Bastards, I thought he was fantastic because he does this thing where he's this sort of uber master race. He's like the yeah. Nazi perfection, like kind with this celebrity and he's a celebrity and he's likable and charming. And then you see him in the scene with the character Shoshana and he yes. just turns into your most vicious nightmare of a Nazi. Um, right. And that, that I thought was really amazing. I don't know what he's doing with his character. It's just this very weird stilted voice. And it's a little high. Yeah. With the German accent. But, you know, anyway, this, sorry, this podcast is not supposed to be about criticizing acting, but that's where I go to. But, um, you know, I would say see it. And um, there's a lot to enjoy. It's really gory. Oh, you know who else is in it that's fantastic? Who? Ted Levine. Oh, Ted. Ted Levine. Ted Levine plays the retired police commissioner. And the only problem, and Ted Levine is great in everything he does. And he's a great multi-talented, wide spectrum of acting ability. I can't pull my leg you can't up show, to you can't show my new tattoo. tattoo. <laughs> but the problem is, I'll post it. is that he, every time I look at him, I'm like, that's Buffalo Bill. 
I know. Like I saw him in what else is he? And I'm like, oh, he's playing a nice guy in this role, but he's Buffalo but Bill. That's Buffalo Bill. So well, and Buffalo forever. Bill, of course, we're talking about as the the killer from Silence of the Lambs, yeah. Jamie Jamie Gum. Jamie Gum. Yeah. I just my newest tattoo I just got is a an American traditional style version of a bottle of lotion in a basket. <laughs> So, folks, she is not kidding. Do you think we could post that? I'll post it. Yeah, we should post that because that's really cool. And I, I love, love the it. fact that you qualify that it's American traditional because that's yes. very much a distinct style of tattoo that is yes. really cool. Yes, I'll post it. All right. So I really liked it. Um, I like the book. I highly recommend that. I think how the many books series are there? Series. Uh, I think there's only two. Uh, yeah, followed by Angel of Darkness. That's all okay. I know. Same characters and everything? Did um, you read it? A couple. No. No? I mean, I read a, a review of it. But now, you know what? Because I remember when it came out, I was in grad school. And I wasn't oh, reading okay. anything but uh, textbooks for a long time. But... So I'm going to go back and read it. Now we can read whatever we want. We That's read the what... best thing about leaving grad school really 10 is. years ago, 9 years ago. So what? It, let me see if there's some other points that I wanted to bring out from this series that I think are great. Um there was another thing that was really cool. The Isaacson brothers, that are the the two uh, Jewish police officers, they what are seen as sophisticated me- uh, methods of investigation. You know, we talked about printing, uh, fingerprinting, mm-hmm. but there's also another thing that was being developed, which we take for granted now, called um, the Bertillon or yeah Ber- Bertillon uh, system. And the Bertillon system was like, hey. You know, we're arresting all these people and we're looking at suspects. Why don't we start keeping a record of people who have a record and take their physical measurements? What? Like the idea. Say what? But I mean, you, I mean, it does make sense that at some point somebody's going to figure out that we've got to start keeping these records. But you just don't think about that. Like, oh, that, that didn't that exist didn't at exist. one time. Yeah. So, yes. and they were going so far as to like, you know, measure forehead width and width between eyes mm-hmm. and you know, um, finger, you know, finger index finger to finger, and... finger and, index finger to index finger and, um, wingspan. Yeah. Wingspan. That's it. <laughs> and height. I mean, those things were, Oh my very, gosh. Very that's really insane to think about. I'm just, I'm at a conference this week and just sat through a, uh, presentation on DNA. Oh, wow. It, you know, you think like, okay, technology is pretty great. And with, you know, discovering, Golden State Killer through this familial DNA and knowing that there's not just DNA from um, body fluids, but touch DNA and all this stuff, it would blow your mind if you knew it was out there. Like, just don't do a crime <laughs> because yeah. well, even I was sitting there going, what? Yeah. Like, there are companies now that will take DNA and put together a composite sketch of what you look like. I, I'm i sorry, it's, that's sorcery. It, that is sorcery. I do not understand that. That it freaks is me out. so interesting. And for a topic that I thought was going to be dry, mm. given by, um, you know, a, a forensic scientist, just it was fantastic and it's frightening and not frightening in a bad way, um, but just... Well, let's talk about it. It being, should be frightening. Well, to let's talk about it being frightening in criminals. a bad way since we're talking about entertainment examples. Yeah. One of them would be Gattaca. You know, okay. Gattaca yeah, yeah, was yeah. an amazing movie, but the whole idea that, you know, that, you know, just 
20 years in the future that people have, they're having, you know, all of the DNA tweaked. Yeah. So that you're only getting like these, you know, perfect people. And what inevitably happens is all the people, perfect people with the perfect DNA get the best jobs. And the people that are, you know, sort of born through regular means end up being janitors. Regular means. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, um, a recorded interview with a serial killer today and he was confessing to a crime that had happened years before he was caught. And he's like, man, I'm not scared of the investigators. I'm scared of the forensic guy. You know, I'm scared that that's the guy that's going to end up having you all knock on my door one day. And he's like, I don't know what you're going to develop decades from now. Okay. So I, I know you and I have never talked about this, but Mm -hmm. here's something that's even more freaky because they use this in an episode of investigation discovery. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of a chimera? Do you know about chimera? No. Okay. So and the name comes from Greek and Roman mythology mm-hmm. that a chimera was a type of monster. And I can't remember which it like myth it was. But tiger? It, it was like... a weird combination. Even for mythology, it was a bizarre beast. And I would be, I mean, I will never know, but the idea of figuring out where it came from. But it was like the body of a lion with a snake's tail. And I believe eagle's talons and a goat's head coming out of the back okay so it was like this weird so anyway we've adapted that term in the last 30 years to represent the dna research where you know they actually say oh when we combine when we do recombinant dna from Mm -hmm. two different species Mm -hmm. we're going to call it a chimera interesting okay so building on that it's possible for a woman to have children that have very confusing DNA. Like they're so, you know, when you have like parent tests yeah. to verify DNA, there's a chance that that's not actually a hundred percent accurate because there are times when a woman can have a child that only expresses one set of DNA. And it'll be one set of DNA and then pulling from her maternal lineage Mm -hmm. instead of, even though the guy provided the sperm and the fertilization, his DNA DNA doesn't show up in it. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm probably getting something wrong. (laughs) We had a glass of wine before we started this. so (laughs) I just sat through a two-hour lecture on DNA. And then he said nothing about that today. It's very, very rare. But but I I did learn that... The Y chromosome, which is the male chromosome, right? Only males have it, has the least amount of information on it. It is the most useless, wow. smallest chromosome there you go. of human. And, and gosh, It's also human. degrading. Do they yes. talk about it's degrading from an evolutionary yes. standpoint? There's it's a degrading. book. It's called Adam's Curse. Yeah. And it's written by a scientist. And it's all about how the future's female. There may not be men out there. Well, we, we learned that in Jurassic Park. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Nature will find a, a way. That's a great note to end on. Okay. Um, so we really want to encourage you guys, if you are liking what you're listening to so far in season two, go back and listen to season one if you haven't. Please. Um, but also we would love, it would really help out if you would subscribe on iTunes. We're also on Google Play and Stitcher. It just helps out a lot, especially, you know, indie podcasts like us. Um, and we want to interact with you guys. So on, um, so please consider going to iTunes and giving us a rating. Give and us it, a rating. Yeah. I mean, give a us review. a, give it, give the rating, the rating that you feel is, is appropriate. If you yeah. feel it's only worth four and a half stars rather than five, then 
you know, by all means. And I will read the reviews because, you know, Scott's very sensitive on some of that. I, know. I have so to curl I'll up in the corner it. and cry. <laughs> I'll read it. Um, so on Instagram, we are at LA Not So Podcast and Twitter, we're LA Not So Pod. Um, but please reach out and uh, we'd love to interact with you guys that way. The other thing is that we are going to do an upcoming episode live. We'll tell you about the schedule and we're going to video it. So we will be recording the podcast, but we'll also be live streaming, live streaming it on our Facebook page. So please come and follow us on Facebook. Um, join in the discussion, send us ideas for the show. And we're going to see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye, guys.